It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. With Stu, I'm your host on this 7 November 2017 election day, and we've got a really good show here tonight for you. Something I've wanting to been talk about a long time, and I got two individuals on tonight that I, I think are going to be very interesting in, in talking about uh, healthcare. Uh, certainly, a topic of interest in this country has been for some time. Um, some are pretty happy with uh, where we're going, say with the Affordable Care Act. Others uh, think that it's you know the the end of the world. Um, but, you know, I think tonight we want to talk, see maybe if there's some, some different ways we can look at the problem. And, and it's a little bit of a setup. Uh, Commonwealth Fund uh, periodically comes out with uh, rating the, uh, the health care systems in the U.S. So just some things I'm going to throw out here about their findings, and then I'll throw some counters out, uh, and then we'll go from there. So the Commonwealth found that among 11 developed nations uh, that the – U.S. healthcare system was the worst performing uh, when they looked at it. Um, they focused on things like care process, access, uh, administrative efficiency, equity, healthcare outcomes. Uh, in total, about 72 indicators. And the developed nations are countries you would expect: uh, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, uh, Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, the U.K. Uh, you know, all the usual suspects there. U.S. rated especially poor in a quality of coverage, uh, finding that 44% of low-income Americans have trouble gaining access uh, as compared to, say, 26% of high-income Americans, while in the U.K. those numbers would be 7% and 4% respectively. Um, and the U.K., by this study, was deemed as the best healthcare system, as it has been for a while. Um, U.S. did rank fifth in care processes, which include prevention, safe care, coordination, patient engagement, but it was still managed to be the worst of the 11 nations. And it's the only high-income nation to lack uh, universal health care, which is of note. Now, critics will counter that study, and they'll say, uh, well, hey, you know, that's one way of looking at it, but perhaps actually in treating people once they're sick, they'll say the U.S. is the best. And uh, they'll point out that, yes, uh, while we spend a large share of our our GDP, about 18 percent on health care, we also happen to be one of the richest countries in the world. And therefore, we have what they would say is a lot of disposable income. And therefore, a lot of that's going to go to, you know, spending more on health care to keep ourselves alive because we're an affluent nation. Um, They would also say that some of the measurements weren't fair by nature of the way things are are documented, are, uh, are measured. So like infant mortality rates, um, different countries measure that differently on what they call a stillborn, uh, you know, counting miscarriages or not counting miscarriages. Um, 
And, you know, there's just different things like that. And I can run down this list. I think one of the more interesting things was uh, cancer survival rate, survival rates. Um, United States, uh, prostate cancer uh, survival is 99%. Denmark, it's 47%. Um, Fifth-year survival rates for breast cancer are higher in the United States than England, Denmark, Germany, and Spain, according to the American Cancer Society. So, so basically, there's 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 give and take, and there's countered all of this, and I think it's kind of hard to really uh, make some sense out of it. Though, the one thing that both groups uh, agreed upon was that we spend a lot of money on healthcare. It seems to be going up a lot. Uh, outpacing uh, inflation, and then that is absolutely a problem. Uh, And one thing that was in the Commonwealth um, study that was interesting was it said to gain more than incremental improvement, the U.S. may need to pursue different approaches to organizing and financing delivery systems. And it said these could include strengthening primary care, supporting organizations, that excel at care coordination and moving away from a fee-for-service payment or other types of purchasing that create incentives to better coordinate care. Um, These steps should ensure early diagnosis and treatment, improve the affordability of care, and ultimately improve the health care of all Americans. Now, that last part, to me, I thought was interesting, and I think it gets buried a lot because with the way the health care debate works in this country, and it's sort of led by the politicians because they're the ones coming up with the solutions – but because you've got politicians and lawyers, quite frankly, up there making all of the making all of the calls, I think they focus a lot on how we're going to pay for it or who's going to pay for it. And what they don't focus upon, I think, are some fundamental questions, which is, number one, in terms of social justice, what do we want out of a health care system and, 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 and what do we need to to provide uh, as a means to take care of our fellow Americans? And secondly, once we determine that, what's the best way to do it and how do we do it? And then it seems to me then the question of how do we pay for it uh, should be asked. But, but we focus, in my mind, a lot on how we're going to pay for this rather than how we deliver it. Now, my guests tonight are familiar faces to probably – Folks in the ASP and certainly in distributed uh, circles, uh, John Madai, a retired businessman and adjunct at, at the uh, theology department, the University of Dallas, author of two books, The Vocation of Business, Social Justice in the Marketplace, uh, and Toward a Truly Free, Truly Free Market, a Distributist Perspective. Uh, and he wrote an article called Distributism and the Healthcare System, which is sort of the basis of, of part of our talk tonight. Now, uh, I'll also ask this, Mr. Badai, um, you I know you're right at the American Conservative. I've seen you at the Imaginative Conservative. Where else do you hang your hat when you're writing? Oh, the Distributist Review and uh, um, anybody who's hard up for uh, input that week. Okay. And then so my uh, my other guest, Dr. Matthew Loftus, and his wife Maggie currently live in Kenya, which I think is uh, it makes you the one one of two uh, listeners we have on the continent of Africa because you it had to be you guys in Kenya that listened to one of our programs before, um, and it's I was reading I was reading you guys are studying Swahili in preparation for long term service at AIC Latane Hospital in Kenya, and you guys previously mm-hmm. previously worked in the South Sudan at his House of Hope Hospital, 
which I think is, you know, you guys are really living, living uh, what you, uh, what you say. How did you guys get involved in, in wanting to go to Africa? Uh, I mean, it started a long way back of just feeling called by God to be part of some sort of cross-cultural ministry. And um, over time, it became clear that um, uh, healthcare was the best way to use the gifts I had. And so, um, you know, went through medical school and residency and scoped out some places and um, met with different teams and felt like South Sudan would be a good fit. Um, and it was for the first nine months, and then it was not because <laughs> uh, of security issues. Yeah. So we uh, relocated now, and and we're we're studying language, um, so I can be part of a, a family medicine teaching program that's just started here in Kenya. I think it's amazing. I think that's probably a good topic, perhaps for another show one day to talk just about your experience there, because I'm, I'm sure you you've already got a lot to tell. It it was. Uh, Certainly eye-opening. <laughs> All right. So um, now, now Dr. Loftus recently gave a talk to the ASB chapter in Maryland about healthcare as well, and you can find that on YouTube. Uh, now he also, uh, I guess, at Mere Orthodoxy is where you can find his writings, and uh, you can even find a transcript on that, which is is really great to read through. So that's who we have on tap for tonight. Are uh, are these two gents, and we're going to try to break down. Uh, the healthcare system as much as we can in an hour and a half. I mean, if, if we haven't been able to fix it in, in 20 plus years, I don't think we're going to fix it tonight, but we can perhaps look at it a little bit differently. I'll ask both you gentlemen, um, you know, I opened with the, you know, why we're the worst, why we're the best. I mean, what's the truth there? I mean, for a, for a guy like me who, uh, you know, I just go to the doctor and I'm a retired military guy. So, you know, for the last 20 plus years, all I've known is military medicine, um, Dr. Loftus, what do you think? Are, are we are we the worst? Are we the best? Are we somewhere in the middle, or is it a yes and no answer? Uh, well, it really depends on who you are. Um, if you happen to have um, uh, good insurance and you have some rare disease or uh, advanced cancer, um, we have a lot of great resources for that. Um, you know, our, our medical systems. Uh, seem to mostly be designed to um, care for the worst of the worst and the weird, the odd, and the rare. Um, sort of the idea that, you know, we want to go as far as possible for um, any, any person um, who might possibly um, have, have some kind of medical problem. Uh, but what that leaves out is every person. So um, if we, uh, you know, if you happen to not have insurance, um, then, you know, or you don't live very close to a source of health care, you know, a good source of health care, or you're having trouble making an appointment, or, you, you know, you don't speak English, like at that point, um, you can have uh, some kind of run-of-the-mill disease. Um, that really takes you out. And so, um, you know, our, it, it's a question of what our healthcare system is for, what is, uh, and I, I think that if, if what you want is to um, help whoever happens to, you know, have um, the resources 
to get treated um, live in a place you know where they can get treated um, then then we're the best but uh, you know if you want to pick any random person um, who doesn't have the resources um, then you know those per- those people are uh, really at a disadvantage compared to other countries does that make sense that does make sense. Um, so, I mean, Mr. Madai, would you anything from, you know, with your distributor's hat on and looking at it from, I guess, an economic standpoint or just the, the, the system we have, any any thoughts on that question about being the, the best and the worst? I mean, what's what's stacked against us on, on why we're we're maybe underperforming? Right. Well, I think uh, the, uh, um, it depends on what part of the system you, you occupy. So. I'm retired, so I actually have socialized medicine. And for me, it works very well indeed. Um, the, uh, I think, uh, so we have different medical systems for different groups of people. We don't have a medical system. Uh, I think it would be mm-hmm. interesting, though, to start with the third question you asked, how to pay for it, uh, and look at uh, how we not how we pay to it, but to whom do we pay? And mm. how do we set the prices? Well, and it turns out that we, um, our medicine, first place, is uh, we don't have ACA, Obamacare, is not a healthcare system, it's an insurance care system. And standing between every American and the doctor is private insurance companies. Um, even to an extent for uh, Medicare, because Part D, Part D, and private insurance. So, and then we find that our medicines are delivered under a systems of monopolies and oligopolies. Uh, not so monopolies for um, um, things like medical equipment, hospitals, and uh, 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 medicines themselves are all set by monopoly or oligopoly pricing. Under monopoly pricing, you really can't provide insurance, even if insurance is a valid way of providing for insurance. But the more money you pour into a monopoly system, all you do is drive up prices. So uh, under a, uh, a market system, not a free market system, under a monopoly market system, prices only rise the more money you put into the market. So that's one of our problems. Now, Europe, they negotiate the prices. So it's not a market price system. It's sort of a negotiated price system. Uh, And that's why they don't spend what we spend. Yet, the same drug providers are more than willing to provide the same drugs for a fraction of the price that we pay for them. The same doctors are more than willing to pay for to provide the same services our doctors provide, but for a fraction of the cost. And so uh, how we pay for it, the prior question is to whom we pay and how do we set the price? Mm. Now, do you think, and I'm getting a little ahead, and we'll get back to where I kind of wanted to start, but since you, since you brought it up, do you think the Affordable Care Act? I mean, did it did it really change much of that? Did it or it just did it kick the can down the road? Well, I think it did neither. Uh, I think it was a lot less effective than the um, uh, 
the Democrats claim, uh, because the biggest increase, as I understand it, in insured came through the expansion of Medicaid and not so much through the exchanges. Now, there are a few million on the exchanges, and that's a good thing. I don't want to um, put that down. But the big thing was the expansion of the purely socialized um, part of it. Um, and so it was less effective, I think, than its factors at hope, um, but too effective for, for its enemies, which is kind of a bad situation. So in the end, the end, we really, I guess you could say we just stirred the pot a bit and we punted. Yeah, we did. And it was, uh, if you'll remember, all through that year that it took to pass that, um, what Obama was really aiming for, what he really wanted, was the public option to serve as a check on the insurance companies. The insurance companies would have to do at least as well as the public option to compete. The insurance companies felt, well, to a certain extent, that's not fair. How can we compete with government-backed programs? Um, but uh, at the same time, that was the only way of, of really, if you wanted to go to price control, that they did Europe, that was really the only way of reining in the insurance companies. Um, and um, um, providing providing an alternative to them. It still didn't address the problem of pricing, of drug pricing, of medical care pricing, uh, and the rather arcane system we have in hospitals, which is basically a cost-plus business. All right, well, let's... I want to double back that back to that a little bit later, and I want to kind of keep on uh, building up on it because you know we certainly have talked about um, you know where we stand are we the best or the worst, and it's a mixed bag, which is not surprising. But let's go to the fundamental question I think needs to be asked. You know, people talk about a right to health care, and what does that even mean? Do do we have a right to health care, or is health care something else? Because on one hand, if someone says a right to health care, that to some people that sounds like, you know, I can go down to the doctor and, and, and demand a facelift. It's health care. But I, I think we'd all agree that's not really what we're talking about. So what would a right, right to health care mean? And is that actually the right terminology? So, Dr. Loftus, if you could take a, a swing at that to start. Yeah, I, I don't like the language of <clears> – <throat> having a right to health care, because as you said, it's, it's very ambiguous. It's very slippery. Um, you are not quite, you, know, you can say, you know, people can say, well, you know, anyone can walk into an emergency room at any time. And if they have an urgent medical need, it can be addressed. Um, you know, ever since we passed Antala back in the eighties, like that, that's there. And, you know, we support, um, you know, the government funds, a lot of vaccines for children and things like that. So you, um, so you know, some people could claim, yeah, you know, if you have, yeah, you have a right to healthcare, and we do that already through the ER. Um, but I don't think that that's particularly comprehensive. And obviously, most of the people who say we have a right to healthcare don't really like that, and they they want something a bit more expansive. You know, something that basically covers 
um, all uh, primary, preventive, chronic care, and emergency care um, when they think about a right to health care. I think that's what, what they, you know, that's the asterisk on what a, what a right to health care means. Um, I prefer to think of health care as a social good that um, uh, helps us to achieve or defend our right to life. Um, you know, uh, there's the, um, uh, 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 I'm thinking of an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, um, which is not a show I would highly recommend. Um, but there was one very, <laughs> very telling moment when they're, uh, you know, one of the characters is uh, at the hospital and they ask if the, you know, the clerk asks if they have insurance and they say, well, no, but like, you know, I'm sick. I, I need it. You know, if I, if someone's, you know, robbing me, I don't pay the policeman to shoot him. If, the, if there's a fire in my house, I don't pay the fireman to, you know, come put it out. <laughs> I, I, you know, I got to get what I need. Um, you know, <clears throat> so in, in, you know, in other circumstances, and, and again, we, we've already accepted this when it comes to vaccines, that the, um, you know, that there are forces beyond our control that threaten our life and our health. And so um, we collectively uh, work together to, um, both try to prevent those um, things from happening, you know, with police patrols and um, public safety programs and things like that. And, you know, the firemen who, you know, come around to your house and check and make sure you have your, uh, your smoke detector is working, you know, but then they also are there in case of an emergency and you can call them at any time. And so I, you know, I think healthcare is a, is a social good, uh, we can build it up in good ways um, and create systems that are um, efficient and um, address all of our needs holistically, or we can, you know, do, build it up the way we've built it, which is this Byzantine system where various um, monopolies and oligopolies are, you know, trying to extract as much money from each other and the government as possible. Um, so... Yeah. All right. And before I yeah. throw that over to, to Mr. Madai, I just want to say, folks, um, we did have a caller and I know you, you dropped off because we were in, in the middle. But uh, please, folks, call in and you can get your questions uh, to our guests. That number is 917-889-3030, 917-889-3030. Um, go ahead, Mr. Madai. Uh, you were going to pick up there. Yes, I was. I was going to point out that this is um, the, the fundamental question that you have to answer is, is health care a common good, or as Dr. Loftus calls it, a social good, or is it a market good? Now, market good is uh, allocated by price. Those who have more get more. Um, a common good is uh, social good is allocated on the basis of need. Those who need it get it. Uh, I don't know if you need to uh, put that into a, uh, a language of rights, but certainly a language of goods, of shared goods, I think w without it being treated as a common good, I think you'd uh, introduce just the kind of social pathology that we have produced. Now, these social pathologies show up a lot in those numbers 
that uh, those 72 measures that uh, the study you cited points out. But it shows up in a lot of other ways. It shows up when people go bankrupt because of uh, medicine, uh, medical bills, or that they just don't seek treatment because they don't feel mm-hmm. they have access to it, or they can only get the 555 care at the, uh, at the emergency room. My 555 plan is you wait five hours uh, just to see a, a doctor for five minutes at a cost of five dollars. Um, they, they do fall into despair, and they do, people are nervous. Uh, I mean, if a child should get sick, if a wage earner should get sick, it, it does introduce a, a lot of social pathology into the body politic. So we have to really answer this question. We want to see this as a market good or as a social good. It is a, it is a social good in the, in the same sense that roads, police, fire department, national defense, uh, uh, all of these things are social goods where presumably everybody has equal access or is it a market good like iPhones and um, uh, some get the some get the model ten and some get the eight and some get nothing. That's the fundamental question we have to answer as a nation. So I think when you know people talk about it being a right, I have always seen that that maybe it's it's just a lacking in the lexicon and they're grasping at exactly what you guys just both said that it's a social good, but they just can't quite describe it. Yeah, we've lost the language of social goods because social goods are socialized goods and socialized goods are socialism. And, well, there you go. Uh, right. So we've uh, – but I think this, the language of social goods is probably better than the language of rights um, because the language of rights, as it has developed in America, has been become divorced from the language of duties. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always a little bit nervous about a pure rights language, but nevertheless, a social good language, I think, is something that we can and should develop. All right, so let's, uh, let's build upon lexicon a bit and, and defining our terms. And I'll start with you, uh, uh, let you continue with this, Mr. Madai. Um, universal health care gets thrown around a lot, and so does the term single payer. And I think quite often people use those interchangeably uh, or they just don't even know, you know, I guess to them it just might even just mean, you know, like my medicine's paid for. Um, I don't think we really understand what those terms mean. And we use them synonymously when we, when they shouldn't be. So thoughts on that, on those terms, if you could kind of expand on those universal health care and single payer. Okay, who's that directed at? Well, that was you, Mr. Madai. Well, uh, that's that's true. A universal um, single payer is one way of delivering universal health care. I'm sorry, can you hear me? I can. Okay. Um, yeah. So, Mr. Loftus, or Dr. Loftus, you got uh, some thoughts on that too about the differences be- between that and what those terms actually mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, you can, there's all sorts of ways to have universal health care. 
you know, people use the example of, um, uh, you know, with, within our own country, we have three or four different healthcare systems. So there's, um, you know, so if you're a veteran and you go to the Veterans Administration, that is a, um, that's one form of, you know, universal healthcare for all veterans, uh, similar to the NHS in the UK. There, not only does the government pay for everything, but it also runs everything. So, you know, the doctors are technically government employees and, um, you know, they, they pay the salaries and decide where people go and how they work and um, who gets what. Then um, for another version of single payer is what you see in Canada, where, and it's sort of like the way that we run Medicare in the United States. The government pays for everything, but the government doesn't run um, the hospital um, or the doctor's offices. They don't make decisions. Everybody, you know, there, there's a market out there um, in terms of, you know, independent hospitals and chains and different doctor's offices and groups and things like that. But in the end, um, you know, you have to comply with what the government says. And then there are other countries um, in mostly in Western Europe where you have, um, you know, an insurance-based system like our system, you know, sort of, you know, the, the rest of the, of America. And that's where you get, um, uh, you know, individuals buy their own insurance or they get it paid for subsidized through their work. Um, or the government helps to subsidize what people can't pay on their own. Um, and, uh, you know, basically the government subsidizes it just enough such that people don't, you know, no one falls through the cracks. The idea of universal health care is that any citizen in the country um, will have um, a, you know, primary, preventative, chronic, or emergency need met um, as long as it's, you know, supported by medical evidence and within reason. So um, you can single have to jump in the there. The government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I jump in there. One of the frustrating things about this debate is that there are so many working models all over the world mm-hmm. where people have delivered universal or near universal health care through a variety of different methods. And that sort of cross-cultural, cross-transnational comparisons are just not part of the American debate, not only in this area, but in so many other areas. And it's like I've often thought that if the United States of America was the world's biggest island. I mean, we have, <laughs> uh, I mean, if you live in Germany, you know what's going on in France and in Switzerland and in England. Um, you can't avoid it. But the United States, we don't even know what's going on in Canada. And we're afraid of anything that's going on in Mexico. So we certainly don't use them as models. Um, And it makes us, frankly, a little closed-minded. We don't take the sources of information. We don't take all of these wonderful experiments that are performed all over the world and where we can go and look at the systems and see what we like, what we don't like about them, what we could synthesize from them, what we could accept, what we could reject, etc. So we cut ourselves off from 
uh, vast ranges of information, knowledge, and wisdom that are around the world, but for some reason invisible to Americans. Would you say, uh, Mr. Badai, though, that our system is such that for us to do that, it's almost like it's almost like the American mentality is right now, and perhaps even the system that, say, we look over, we, we, we look across the ocean, we decide we want to do everything like Denmark, that mm-hmm. the mindset becomes, okay, well, let's make the United States like Denmark instead of, it doesn't seem like we have a, a system or a mindset in place where, say, three states in the Midwest could say, we're going to do it like Denmark uh, and, and break it down into, into smaller bites. Yeah, yeah. In other words, invoking some kind of subsidiarity here. Yeah, I, I mean, I just don't – I think that we look to the federal level first, and at least for me, I become a little skeptical that we could pull off on such a scale, like with, in one fell swoop, uh, some of these great experiments you're talking about on the – on, on you know much smaller countries, uh, whether it's in Northern Europe or uh, you know it's or it's even in Asia, uh, because we just we can't pull it off like that because the system's not in place for to, to allow us to pull it off. Yeah, yeah. There is. I mean, I think that's that's great observation because this is such a large country, and the um, um, uh, we do have uh, we should be able to do kind of. The, the, the laboratory of the states, I think they used to call it. There is a problem, however. See, that would be very possible for Virginia, or California, New York. It's a little bit dicier when you start getting to Idaho or Wyoming. I mean, Wyoming isn't as big as the city of Irving, for crying out loud, and the city of Irving is the suburbs. Um, <laughs> so um, many of the areas would have to have multi-state, I think, systems. California could have multiple systems in one state. Um, uh, Virginia could certainly uh, experiment on its own. But allowing that caveat, I think what you say is exactly correct. We, um, if there was some way of enabling that, there is another problem in that in the United States, um, the states really don't have the revenue sources that the federal government does. So the federal government can collect um, far more taxes than the states can, which somewhat handicaps them as, as laboratories. So uh, Virginia really isn't like France or Germany. Um, it really is, whether we care to admit it or not, a subdivision of the, um, of the federal government wasn't designed that way, but that's sure the way it's worked out. Um, and in the end, in politics, power follows taxing authority. Yeah, that, and that almost makes it sound as if, you know, you're not going to get any kind of headway to get those laboratories in the U.S. until we actually take care of a, or, or, or formulate a tax system that maybe empowers the states and the regions uh, yeah, more than it does up, now. Than down, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, that, I think that's what the Republicans are thinking in things like block grants, but they're not really willing to block ranking up to the states to do something like that. So you're saying there's still strings right. attached. It's not they don't just give the money and say do what you want. 
well, there's, I guess there should be strings attached if you get money, but nevertheless, they wouldn't give enough money anyway to make it work. Oh, I got it. Right. Yeah. So is, are we left with the understanding then, you know, because since everyone wants single payer, I mean, and I say everyone and I'm exaggerating, but that's what you hear now, you know, single payer now. I mean, is that the, is that the magic bullet? Uh, for, for the U.S.? Is it, we just go to single-payer, uh, all problems are solved? Well, that's certainly something that has to be considered. I mean, seriously debated. And there has to be, um, you know, if somebody doesn't want single-payer, then they have to have some other way of reaching the idea of health care as a, as, a, as a common good. There may be other ways to do it, but that's fine, but that's the debate that has to take place. Yeah, so, Dr. Loftus, I know you had in one of your, in some of your writings mentioning single payer. Um, what do you think are the advantages of going to that that approach? I mean, I think it's it's the it's the simplest way to make sure everybody has access to care that they need. Um, 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 yeah, that's that's the main advantage, I would say. Um, the disadvantage is that all of the problems that we <clears throat> well I shouldn't say all um, because it will reduce a lot of the inefficiencies and bureaucracy that currently exist you know we spend four times as much on paperwork um, as Canada does just because we have so many different insurance companies and different hospitals and who's in which network and, and all of that kind of stuff um, so we can eliminate some of those redundancies, um, and we can make sure that everybody has access to some kind of care. Um, you know, obviously the question of paying for it um, is a bit of a sticky wicket. Um, but then also, I think more importantly, um, most of the other problems in terms of the concentration of power in the hands of doctors and hospitals and um, the drug companies, yeah. Uh, yeah, drug companies and uh, all of those dynamics are basically unchanged. Um, although I, I mean, I would imagine that under a single payer system, the government would have a lot more negotiating power with the drug companies at least, um, and might be able to standardize uh, prices across hospitals um, to some degree. But you still have um, doctors that are overpaid. Um, doing things that they're overqualified for. Well, you I know, think I for think me, the pay. No, go ahead, Mr. The, I'm sorry. The, um, the the paying for it is less of a problem than we think because we're spending 18 percent of GDP. I think the next second place is like 12 or 11 percent of GDP. So. We're already spending the money. And if you look at that 18%, about 9% of that, half of that, is already spent by the government. In other words, what we have is the worst of both systems. We spend as much <laughs> as Canada on public health, but we don't have a public health system. <laughs> we spend as much, um, uh, we spend an equal amount on private insurance, but we really don't have a free market system. So it's as if we've taken the worst features of both systems and combined them into a Rube Goldberg contraption 
that pleases no one except those who profit from the system. And, well, with 18% of GDP spent, there's an awful lot of people making an awful lot of profit off of the system. Yeah, um, Dan Carlin, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dan Carlin, um, and he does a – he does two podcasts. One is called Common Sense. The other is called Hardcore History. And the Hardcore History one, he goes on these marathon, like, six-hour podcasts going over some era of history. Very very fascinating. Now, he is admittedly a libertarian, and he has made the, he's made the case on one of his podcasts that strictly from – if you're, he says if you're a conservative and you're strictly concerned about spending money, then you've got to be for single payer because we could do it for cheaper if we just paid for everyone out of the pocket right now than we're paying right than, than we're paying with the existing system. And uh, if you control yeah. costs, if you control drug, drug costs, yeah, and if you could attack the hospital pricing problem, which is another scandal in the system. I guess my concern about single payer is this. You know, being a uh, being a career military officer, I, I just see like that we would be setting up another Department of Defense type thing. We would <laughs> we'd run this big big healthcare system, and then pretty soon the tail would wag the dog, and we would be spending like the DOD for healthcare. And I think mm-hmm. it, you know, it, with people's health comes to mind, we'd really spend. We wouldn't. We, you, you know, no cost would be too much when it comes to someone's health, and that's my fear of growing a very a, a big federalized system. I mean, thoughts on that? Am I, am, I, am I out to lunch, or is that a concern? No, it already happens, uh, and it happens at the wrong time. So as I said, I was on Medicare, and we'll find that uh, we've invested, you are going to invest, your children are going to invest, <laughs> That's right. an awful lot of money in the last 30 days of my life. You are going to pay out the nose for the last 30 days of my life. It mm-hmm. is, quite frankly, um, a misallocation of resources. But I have more bargaining power in the market because I have the federal government behind me, and you don't. Um, well, so fortunately, we like your book. This, so, Who's going to win <laughs> this argument? Huh? You or me? Yeah. Well, let's yeah. uh, hey, let's take a call right now. Can't get anywhere, mm-hmm. um, guys. We got a call, and uh, you know, last one we went running on, and the guy uh, the guy fled the scene. But we got a call, so let's uh, go ahead and and uh, have him uh, throw a question. Caller, you're you're on the air. Hello, uh, this is Charles Jenkins, uh, uh, Jeffrey. I think uh, we know each yep. other at least. Um, yes. Um. So I'm calling in as someone who knows relatively little about healthcare. It's a blind spot of mine. Um, but um, you know, we were talking just you know a few minutes ago about uh, prices, and back um, when the AHCA was being discussed, you know, last spring, a lot. I ran into an article that I was able to pull up, um, which was uh, titled "Healthcare Will Never Be Affordable Without Action on Prices." Um, and there was a really short entry that I wanted to read that I thought uh, that I, I thought was very good based on uh, some conversations with some some friends of mine who are a bit more knowledgeable. Um, it should be clear from these examples there is no single explanation for high U.S. healthcare prices and no simple solution. Action is needed, but it needs to come across many fronts at once against mergers 
entry barriers, drug prices, lack of transparency, administrative fragmentation, and other problems. If each of these areas could eliminate a single percentage point of the gap between U.S. prices and those that prevail in our high-income tiers, we could save billions of dollars a year. Um, and um, uh, now a friend of mine said that <laughs> he said uh, um, uh, mergers would actually uh, more mergers acquisition and consolidation insurance would actually be good thing for consumers. But um, I wanted to discuss maybe more the issue of how exactly to address prices because I know Jeffrey is you know uh, expressed worry about the government you know just balloon you know this endlessly ballooning thing and obviously that could very, I could see that happen. So how would we want to regardless of whether it was pure single payer or was you know some other you know some other system? How could we? <laughs> drive down prices and or prevent a, a further ballooning of prices. Jump in well, there, guys. <laughs> a single payer uh, is a monopsony. So you oppose a, um, one buyer. So you oppose a monopsony to a monopoly. Um, a single buyer sets the price, doesn't he? You know, um, especially if he happens to have the cops on his side. So we do what there's models to do that. There's models in Europe. They negotiate the price. And since they're the paying the bill, they can do that. So we could easily, easily cut the costs of um, um, drugs, which are absurd. Uh, We also could, provide some transparency in hospital pricing. You can't call up your your hospital and find out what's the cost of, say, a normal delivery or a normal appendectomy uh, because there isn't one price. And even if there was, they wouldn't give it to you. So it's, it's deliberately designed to be obscure so there can't be any comparison. So I think there's mm-hmm. many ways of addressing that problem, and, the, and Charles is right. That problem needs to be addressed. Okay. okay. Anything else there, uh, Charlie? Another idea that I had um, seen, you know, if, you know, obviously single payer is also a very fraught issue, so it uh, – and it's also kind of a trigger word um, for, for quite a few people. Um, so – you know, if, if, if single payer proves politically impossible, um, but Medicare, which has largely been accepted at least in principle, um, uh, is there a way to, to expand um, Medicare in such a way as to um, uh, allow them to maybe negotiate, uh, allow them further flexibility in negotiating with insurance companies and drug companies? Because right now it seems that there is uh, uh, not a lot of power to do that, and it seems you know it, like that makes it very difficult. There is power to do it, uh, or that is, if they would do it, except for that Congress passed a law prohibiting Medicare from negotiating prices. Mm. It cannot negotiate for the uh, drug prices. Um, so, yeah, it can be done. Huh. 
All you have to do is repeal that law. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's good. That's good. All right. So I'll tell you what. Let's take a quick break. I don't have a lot of breaks in this show just because the topic's good. I want to. When we get back, what I want to do is. Um, we almost had to get the, the topic of paying out of the way, even though I, I, I started off saying that I think we talk about that too much. We almost had to get out of the way. When we get back, what I'd like to talk about is, okay, let's just say whether it's single payer or not, I'd like to get our guests to discuss, um, well, what are some things we can do to assist, you know, systemically to improve the system to better deliver, deliver uh, health care to people and also to keep the population more healthy uh, since we've talked about it being a social good. So we'll do a, uh, we'll do a short break uh, and then we'll be back in about uh, a minute or so. Uh, and you're on the day's work podcast, our guests, uh, John Madai and Dr. Loftus, and we're discussing healthcare and we'll be right back. Hey folks, Stu here from the day's work podcast. Do you like what we're doing here? Are you interested in political thought and policy that doesn't fit into the typical left-right paradigm? Are you interested in providing a Christ-centered witness in the public square? Or do you support the traditional family of mother, father, and child as the foundation of our society? Do you share our call for the greatest possible autonomy for local governments? Or do you advocate for an economy in accord with the dignity of human work, ordered towards ownership and opportunity? Well, you might find yourself at home with fellow travelers like us, as part of the Dorothy Day Caucus. We are an independent group of like-minded members from the American Solidarity Party. Find out more about us at our Facebook group, Dorothy Day Caucus ASP, and more about the American Solidarity Party itself at solidarity-party.org. said short break here on the day's work podcast i'm your host Stu, with uh, mr john madai uh distributist and dr matthew loft is talking about health care uh, here in the states uh that promo for the dorothy day caucus and the american solidarity party hey if you like the day's work podcast by all means go out and affirm us uh and by that i mean like us like the dorothy day caucus on uh on facebook share the podcast uh you know, like us on Twitter. Um, you can certainly also um, get the podcast on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, rate it there. Uh, help spread the word. And and you know, if you got guest ideas uh, or if you think you need to be on, uh, you know, just just drop us a line. It's not that hard. So picking up uh, where we left off, one of the things you said, Mr. Badai, is you talked about uh, Medicare not being allowed by law to negotiate for drug prices. Now, I think that's a good segue into, you know, one of your, your major um, recommendations to kind of make the system more distributist was, uh, you, it's also illegal. Um, and that was uh, in terms of guilds. And if you could kind of expand on that idea a little bit, and then we'll, we'll see from a, you know, how the doctor, what he thinks about a system like that. Bill, I would like to hear Matthew's uh, take on that. But basically, a guild is um, an association of people um, involved in um, uh, who come together to provide health care services. So you have doctors, nurses, pharmacists, um, uh, technicians, 
all the people necessary to deliver health care, and they could set up um, basically their own system. They could train their own people, set their own standards, uh, dispense their own medicine, uh, do whatever it takes to deliver health care. Um, and what makes it work is the requirement for insurance. So a group of could set up a health care cooperative. They could set their own standards, uh, providing many different levels, you know, from what we would call now a nurse practitioner, maybe a medical practitioner, medical doctors. Um, um, and they would license them themselves. They would see to their training, license them themselves. And if somebody, they did something wrong, you would sue not the doctor, but the guild. So all the members of the guild would be responsible for everybody else. That would sort of encourage them to encourage high standards or better, I would say, appropriate standards. Uh, it might be, uh, obviously, the standards for a nurse practitioner um, practicing medicine is different from the standards for uh, an MD or a medical specialist. Um, but let them take care of all of that. Let, that would expand the supply of medical care delivery expand the number of doctors or expand the number of people who actually provided care. When um, you expand the supply, you bring down the cost. Uh, they, being able to provide those full range of services, they could experiment um, in whatever way they saw appropriate, remembering all, always that they're legally, legally responsible for their own actions. So that's basically what a guild uh, could do. Um, I would like to hear Matthew's um, take on that as somebody who actually practices. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an intriguing idea. <clears throat> and I think really the, the, the ideal healthcare system is not, is, is less like the single payer um, monolithic NHS and type system and more like what you're describing in terms of um, understanding that uh, the health of a community is um, is in uh, can't be separated from the health of individuals and so if we're going to be taking care of people and their individual bodies then we have to do it in a way that um, sort of recognizes the interactions they have with, with the community and doesn't simply sort of treat either medical practitioners or patients as kind of interchangeable cogs in the machine. Um, practically, uh, the, I think education um, would be, education and standardization would be the hardest part of dealing with um, a guild system. Um, you know, because for, you know, uh, for, you know, many states uh, in America only have one or two medical schools in them. Mm. And so, um, you know, uh, I, when you talk about the resources necessary to train a doctor, um, I mean, a, a general, you know, a family doctor like myself, 
yeah, I could I could see that happening on maybe the level of of a county, um, you know. But when it comes to training surgeons and and um, more subspecialists, uh, then in you know in urban centers where communities, uh, you know, where many communities will be sharing one hospital, but um, you know they'll each be having their own primary care systems. I think that's a little a little trickier. Um, but I do think um, you know the the thing that you touched on. Um, so in in that sense, it, it's maybe a little too extreme. Where I don't think you're extreme enough um, is in breaking up the doctor's cartel. Um, <laughs> you know because uh, I you know I tell people I did not go to medical school for four years and do three years of residency to sit there and click boxes um, and order colonoscopies and order vaccines. Um, and quite frankly, it's absurd that um, doctors are the only people that are able to do those sorts of things. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, um, I mean, for the start, preventative care, um, you know, uh, a monkey with a checklist is capable of, of doing that. Um, a computer is, is capable of doing that. And it's probably better. I mean, that some in a lot of these more centralized single pair systems, um, it is the computer that does it. You know, they, they send you a little slip in the mail that says, Hey, it's time for your mammogram. And so that way the doctor doesn't have to remember to order the mammogram. Um, and doesn't have to fight with the computer that's, you know, flashing at him. Um, you know, that's, that's just out of the, you know, it's out of the doctor's hands entirely. But I think also that, um, you know, we can train mid-level providers and um, especially community health workers, um, which is, you know, how they do it here in Africa, um, because they just don't have that many doctors. Um, and, uh, you know, to are able to treat common illnesses, uh, help deliver preventive care, and also to engage with communities around the health, you know, the health issues that they're facing and, you know, work with people um, to deal with the behavioral issues that affect their health. Um, because those, you know, something, uh, you know, I've heard that uh, 40% or so of um, diseases, at least in the U.S., um, have some behavioral component. You know, so smoking, um, uh, eating too much, um, not enough exercise, all those kinds of things. You know, that... Uh, Seeing a doctor uh, for 15 minutes once every three months uh, is not a very efficient or effective way to try to convince someone to quit smoking um, or deal with some other behavioral issues. But, you know, if there's a community health worker, someone that, you know, you went to middle school with that you know and trust and who knows you and knows your community, then, you know, that person's going to be more effective, I think and be able to sort of have the longitudinal relationships and regular contact that allows them to deal with um, those behavioral issues that contribute to health, either positive or negative. Well, you know, I think um, the comparison there to third world countries with um, community health workers are probably a bigger addition than, you know, um, cancer surgeons. Um, to the health of the nation. I think that's true in this country as well. We need more community health workers. 
not doctors, mm-hmm. community health workers. And that is, I think, uh, something that uh, guilds can do, uh, providing their own training. Uh, and the community health care workers can, can do two things. They can, they can increase the local knowledge of health among the people, uh, and they can serve as kind of triage. So uh, mm-hmm. this needs to be elevated. This doesn't. You don't need to go to the mm-hmm. doctor for this. Um, you right. need a, you know, you need a cup of chicken soup is what you need. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, um, but also spreading the health, spreading knowledge, because the real doctor that most of us first see is is Mama, and Mama needs to mm-hmm. be properly trained. Um, so uh, that's another function, um, because healthcare isn't just a part of the healthcare system. It's part of the food system. It's part of the uh, uh, the education system. Um, I mean, you think today problems of obesity problems of, uh, which have both a, a component of the wrong kinds of food uh, and a components of no exercise because all of our children are sitting sitting in front of screens um, and interacting with some socially and educationally dubious materials. Uh, so it's, it's a problem that exceeds the medical system per se um, and the medical system per se needs to exceed itself uh, and maybe treat especially some communities in our countries as if they were um, as if they were underserved communities in, in uh, some other countries because in a lot of places it is another country so uh, yeah um, amen to the community health workers I'd like to tie that into, though, even some recent events, uh, at least in a in a in a in a bleak way. Um, you know, with the shooting, the, the the latest rampage shooting that we had down in Texas. Um, you know, when I've talked about gun control with folks, you know, I've always tried to maintain, and I I don't seem to get anywhere because I, I think people just they, they want to do something. But I've always maintained that you know whether it's the suicides. Uh, that you find in the rural areas or the gun crime that you find in the inner cities or the rampage shooters, wherever that it's, it's not the gun violence itself. That is the problem. But I have always thought that those are symptoms of a society that is sick. And it seems to me that my response to that would be, I'd want to bolster this social good we're talking about as a means to reduce those. And I think, so I think gun violence is a metric for, our, our, our health, whether it be mental or physical or mm-hmm. just societal. And I, I, I think that there's some real merit to this approach with this guild system that, yeah, we're, our focus is on a social good and it's on community health. And a lot of these other things would go away. I mean, is that a, what do you guys think of that thought? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, people who study gun violence like to talk about it as a public health problem uh, because it has elements of, contagion uh you know if if, you know the the higher the concentration of people who are committing gun violence or on the receiving end of it um in in an area the more it's going to spread and the more severe it's going to be 
Um, you know, and if you can sort of treat and remove certain, um, you know, uh, you know, people who are, who are really spreading it around as it were, um, you can, you can really reduce the violence. Um, you know, and then I, again, you know, you mentioned suicides, you know, that's, that's a huge issue of, of mental health and having access to those resources. And, um, you know, I think, you know, if we could snap our fingers and make all the guns go away, um, then yeah, we could probably, you know, we would reduce gun violence. Um, practically speaking, that would be very, very difficult. Um, and when you, you know, when you look at the data, um, the things that are most effective in, uh, reducing gun deaths um, tend to be um, public health type interventions, whether that's trying to reach out to, um, you know, most of which is, is reaching out to people who um, have the potential to um, misuse a firearm, you know, whether it's, you know, they are having mental health issues them, themselves and um, they're at risk for hurting themselves or other people and making sure that that underlying problem is dealt with or, you know, people who are, um, you know, just uh, committing violence because that's what they've learned and that's how you survive in your neighborhood. Um, and, you know, you offer that person holistic services and job and connect them with their family and making sure they get health care and all those kinds of things. Um, that that's, those are, you know, those are more effective. Um, those are the most effective interventions that we have um, in front of us. Which is the social yep. pathology thing that you were speaking of earlier, Mr. Badai, correct? Exactly. I think um, the, uh, it really is a subject that it should be the, the, uh, um, an issue that should be the subject of epidemiological studies. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Congress has present, prevented the CDC from studying gun violence as an epidemiological issue. Um, Matthew, I think it's exactly right. Um, Guns are not the problem. But guns make every other problem worse. Mm -hmm. A suicide, a person who slits his wrist um, may change his mind, stop the bleeding, and get to a doctor. But a person who puts a bullet in his head can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So the uh, the problem is worse with a gun in your hand. The gun is not the problem, but <laughs> it sure makes that problem final. The um, but obviously I, the what happened here in Texas a few days ago. This was obviously a very disturbed person, and it's very true also that the person who ran the truck um, through uh, the crowd shouting Aloha Akbar. Uh, that's also a mental health problem, okay? It just gets associated with Islam because a person, a Muslim with that particular mental composition, then takes um, the religion as a justification. But I think it's more likely that he had the same problem the fellow in Texas did. Um, and you look at this um, opioid problem, um, you look at any number of other social measures um, and um, you're finding a society 
that is disassociating from itself. All the natural connections are dissolving. And that's perhaps the most serious problem uh, that any nation can have. Um, So mental health, physical health, is just one piece of that. And it really needs... It really needs some more soul-searching for these common goods which bind us together, of which healthcare is one, but not the only one. Yeah. yeah. Loneliness is an independent risk factor for um, death the older you get. I'm sorry, say that again? And, uh, people who, who rate themselves as very lonely... Um, oh, are yes. you know have a statistically significantly oh. higher risk of death. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just um, I mean, you know, people joke about the old. There's an older study I think that um, married men uh, are like twice as likely as divorced men to survive a heart attack, and that's because you know the wife will say, "No, I'm taking you to the doctor," um, <laughs> but. I mean, there's more and more evidence accumulating that the the more atomized you are and, and the more separated you are from regular human contact and people that love you and care about you and, um, you know, are good for you, the, the, the more likely you are to die um, or get seriously ill. Yes, at base. The real problem is love. Mm-hmm. And when we stop loving each other, you know, in a, uh, a practical way, in a- making actual human connection, everything starts to fall apart. And in fact, that's what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Madai, one of the things that I have talked with you about before, you know, just via via Facebook or whatever was you have always kind of maintained that when everything breaks down or when things start to break down, that distributism will, will kind of rise from the ashes because it's the natural order of things, you know, it's communities doing things for themselves and, 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 and organizing, self-organizing. Um, now, so I wonder if we're actually starting to see this a little bit in the healthcare realm. And, and I don't know a lot about this. I've seen stories on it and I'm hoping um, Dr. Loftus uh, can speak to it as well, but I have a, a friend out in um, Washington State, and at least for their the way that they are compliant with the ACA, which I, I guess you really don't need to be anymore uh, to, too much, but the way they are compliant with it is they've they have put their money into one of these you know I guess some people call it concierge service, but essentially they have a family doctor on retainer for like a hundred dollars a month per person in their family, which is relatively inexpensive. And, you know, and they, you know, they get unlimited visits, uh, very inexpensive x-rays, what have you. I mean, you know, I, I don't know the specifics right now, but I'm sure you've seen these and it sounds like a, a heck of a deal. But when, when they told me about this, I thought immediately, I'm like, man, this sounds like the guilds, uh, you know, being created from the ground up. So Dr. Loftus, have, have you heard of these? Uh, is, is there some truth to this? Oh, yeah. No, it's a big movement. Um, It's called direct primary care. Um, And, you know, the the myth is that it's only for rich people. 
um, because some of the, you know, some of the retainers um, do get pretty pricey. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I do think it's a great model because, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you have your doctor on call. Um, that's the person that you know and, you know, that, that your family knows and <clears throat> whoever else is in their practice. And then um, from the perspective of the healthcare market, um, you, well, so there's two ways um, for, you know, poorer people who are uninsured. Um, then, you know, the doctor kind of works with, you know, has a lab that they like to work with or, um, you know, they try to find ways um, to get the cheapest drugs possible. Um, and that, you know, when you're, when you're uninsured, there is a little bit of price negotiation um, that, that goes on. That's, that's probably where consumers um, have, you know, ironically, are most able to bargain um, when they don't have an insurer middleman um, doing it for them um, or not doing it for them, <laughs> as the case may be. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think that that really, that that sort of system really w would work well for um, a lot of, again, basic preventive and, you know, chronic care. Uh, you know, I, I would say probably the best place where it would work is for chronic care of, um, especially complex diseases, you know, people who have diabetes and hypertension and bipolar disorder and, you know, an arrhythmia. And, and so, but again, the question is, uh, you know, how do you scale it up? Um, how do you subsidize the people that need it? And then what do you do when you, you know, have a brain tumor and you need a brain surgeon? Um, yeah, you know, I can, I can have a, a... Yeah. As a business owner, because and and uh, and, call, and we have a caller waiting. Don't go, caller. We'll we'll get you there in a second. Um, as a business owner, you know, I, I have a small business, and I'm not in a position where I can afford mm -hmm. healthcare for my employees. I just can't afford it. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. a system like this, I believe, gets me closer because I could quite possibly afford this concierge service for my employees, and then. I would be a lot closer and it would probably be easier buying them a, a catastrophic plan to augment that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, yeah. I think, and a lot of, I think more, that model starts to get us close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and take this uh, call. Um, pop on caller. You're on the air. Uh, what would you like to ask our, our team here? Oh, I don't want to start any trouble. I was just going to say, uh, Either you have single payer, universal health care, or if you can't afford it, you die. Essentially, it's that simple. Uh, we can work around it any way we want to, but when it comes down to it, brass tacks, uh, it's either do or don't situation. And when you look across the world at the cost, uh, the fact that we're spending more and getting less becomes a problem. And if we continue to have these fights, uh, not only will it get worse, but uh, I think uh, these companies will be further entrenched within the system and continue to pull out profits while people are just passing away, generation after generation. Well, that's the very definition of treating medicine as a market good. With a market good, some get it, some don't. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. like the iPhone, you know, those who have the money get it, those who don't. I don't do without. 
that's a little bit different when you're talking about heart surgery. Uh, people have gone for days without an iPhone, but I'll tell you what, heart's pretty important. So um, that's why the fundamental decision has to be made as to whether this is a market good or a social good. And even with that, are we ever going to eliminate some medicine being a market good? I mean, there's going to be people that can always afford to pay. Sure. I mean, and those oh, yeah. bariatric surgery, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, cosmetic surgery, things like that are obviously, um, at least in many cases, market goods rather than uh, uh, social goods. But uh you know, curing your curing your child's illness, well, that ought to be a social good. And another thing you said about, you know, you're, you're being a small businessman and you can't afford it. You shouldn't even have to pay, pay any attention to this whatsoever. This, is, this puts a tremendous burden on businessmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be a social services service that the businessman doesn't need to worry about. This, if you do have a plan, it takes an awful lot of your time as a business manager. Time you could be spending uh, delivering the product or service that you went in business to provide. Um, so just as an aid to small business, I mean, it doesn't make any difference for big corporations. They just set up another department. Who cares? But for small business, this, having to worry about these things. And having to make these decisions um, in a confusing welter of information and misinformation, it puts a tremendous burden on them. They shouldn't have, an important person shouldn't have to bear those burdens just to provide some unrelated service. No, it's, a, it's actually a competitive advantage for, for big business, uh, really. Right. Uh, because it, and, and that, that's the part that I think hurts. But on the other hand, you know, down at the small business level, you do you do care about your employees more, I think, or to some extent, and but but yet you're powerless really to do anything. Um, right. It shouldn't be your problem. It should be a social problem addressed socially, and not put the burden on the entrepreneur. It's just uh, it's just an insane way of de- delivering it. It's only delivered that way through a historical accident. Um, mm-hmm that occurred in the United States and in no other place on the globe. Um, mm-hmm. It was an artifact of price controls, wage controls of world war two. And it just continued after that. Well, the, um, I do believe though. Um, and you know, whether, whether I should have to pay for it or not, I think that this concierge concierge uh, movement and what I think is a forerunner to a, a possible guild system uh, you know, it might make it to where it is affordable, and it just wouldn't be that that much of a deal. Now, critics of that approach, you know, I've brought it up before, but they will quickly try to turn the notion of having a guild into, oh, you're going to have all manner of of quackery, and there's no yep. standards. Uh, so, so yep. what do we say to that? Because I, I don't think that it has to be that way. Well, I think there there would. The problem where that is eliminated is it's in with the uh, insurance that sets the standard. Okay, if you're killing people, you're going to have uh, very high insurance costs, 
or you're just going to not have any carrier carrier. You have to be uh, uh, put up your own insurance bond, and that gets prohibitively expensive. So those who have a good um, um, results are going to have lower insurance rates, and those who don't are just going to be driven out of business. Um, also, I wanted to mention another thing on um, what's happening with distributed systems growing up. So I know in Oklahoma and I think in other places, what you find uh, developing are cash-only clinics. They don't accept insurance. They don't accept government uh, payments. They publish a price list. You can, um, um, you can compare them. Often these prices are, 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 are not much more than your deductible. Um, so to set a bone or to remove an appendix, whatever it might be, there's a price list. And once you have that information, well, with a price list, it's a big aid to uh, decision-making. Um, so that's another thing that's growing up. And um, with doctors who just don't want to get into that whole insurance thing, that whole Medicare or the whole government uh, thing, they do it this way. And, of course, it's, its drawback is that it's a market good. But insofar as the market good, at least it's a rational market good. Uh, so it's not the whole right. solution, but it's possibly a part of the solution. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if, if people could. Go ahead, doctor. Uh, you know, if, if yeah, if, if, you know, if people had control over the amount that um, Medicaid was spending on them every month or that the federal government was subsidizing their employer sponsored insurance plan. Um, you know, if they had that money <laughs> uh, and in, and they could just take that money to the cash only clinic. Um, I think that would be a, um, a much more efficient and uh, less painful system than what we have now. All right. Well, I think we're kind of near the end. We can kind of wrap up. We're almost at the end of the hour. I'm going to ask you guys one, one kind of open-ended question each. Uh, we'll start you, you with you, Dr. Loftus. Right now, if you could just make one change um, to the system, um, what, what would it be? Um, I would allow um, community health workers to um, uh, prescribe and treat um, basic common um, illnesses and administer preventive care. You know, I, I can, I will affirm that in this story, and, and I don't know, Mr. Badai in the Army, how, how your medics were, but I can tell you that um, on ship, we would have um, independent duty corpsmen, and even, you know, when I was a, a senior officer, uh, the senior medical officer was a, was, a, was a friend of mine as well, and I'd go see him if I needed needed something. Um, but if he wasn't available, I didn't go to the, uh, the, the number two doc cause I just had some problems with that individual. Um, I went to the senior chief who was an independent duty corpsman 
And I don't believe there's anything like that on the outside. Quite, I know, I know there's nurse practitioners, but I believe an independent duty corpsman is, is even more high-powered than that. And he could prescribe uh, medicines. He wasn't a doctor, but he had a lot of authority. And I think a lot of folks in the Navy are certainly, um, you know, we're used to that approach. But I'm not sure the Amer- – I think there's some stuff you'd have to get – you'd have to build some acceptance with just regular rank-and-file folks. Uh, because yeah. everyone just wants to see the doctor, um, and they think that they're getting mm-hmm. substandard care. Yeah. Okay, so um, yeah. because the, I mean, what, uh, sorry, one more point about that is that because um, you know because community health workers would have to follow you know formulas and checklists, um, they would end up saying no to a lot of people, and we wouldn't spend as much money on useless MRIs and. Uh, drugs that people don't need and antibiotics that only, you know, induce for resistance, et cetera, et cetera. So there would, there would be some, there'd be some adjustment on all ends, but in the end it would be better for all of us. Okay. uh, So Mr. Badai, a little bit of time left. Uh, What would be the one thing you'd change if you could right now? I'd change, I'd separate R and D and, um, the production of medicines. I'd replace patents with licenses. So you develop the cure for cancer, and instead of it being a monopoly product, you license it to anybody who's capable of producing it and willing to pay the license fee. What that does is instead of medicine being delivered by monopolies, it's delivered by um, companies that compete on their ability to uh, efficiently manufacture and distribute it. Uh, So there would be price competition in the drug market. At the same time, um, there would be a constant stream of income for R&D companies. So instead of what is a 15-year patent now, um, which gives you a monopoly right, you could have, say, 25 years in which you could license Um, your medicines to any number of companies and then you'd have a stream of revenue to support more research and development Uh, so Mm. that's the one change uh, because I the the thing I think the biggest cost we have to attack right now is um, the uh, obscene prices of drugs boy and that's a uh I wanted to get into that because I know you can say a lot more to that, but we just ran out of time. So I'm glad you brought it up in the end. Uh, but uh, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and we could almost do, we could do a whole segment on another show, just talking about that, that topic in and of itself. All right. Well, thanks gentlemen. Uh, I appreciate it. I, you know, maybe we will do this again. I, I think uh, we can probably pull some more strings, but uh, it certainly was everything uh I wanted, um, you know, real quick, there were two other things I wanted to mention about you guys because uh, other articles out there that I want to recommend by these gents recently. So Mr. Madai has an article out there called A, a Prayer for Bo Bergdahl at the American Conservative. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. I really do. As, as, as a fellow veteran, I recommend you guys go find that article. And then um, Dr. Loftus has a very good article called Conservatism Fails to Act Responsibly over at Mere Orthodoxy. Check that out oh. as well. I think you'll, you'll really be pleased with both of those, those articles. So thanks oh, again, Jen. Oh, I read that. Oh, I didn't, I'm sorry I didn't associate you with that article. It's an excellent article. Yes, indeed. It was. It, it was indeed. Yes. 
So well, that's good. Good. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we connected the dots there. So thanks again, gents. Uh, everyone, thanks for uh, for listening tonight. Um, don't know who's going to be the neck on the next episode, but uh, you know you can follow us at the Dorothy Day Caucus uh, Facebook page, and uh, you'll find out. And uh, with that, uh, Whisper and Jack will take us out, and this one's for my beautiful bride. So everyone, have a great evening. Thank you. First time that I saw you, as you went passing by, I knew my searching days were through. Then I made my mind up that you would soon know why. That's when I started telling you, little girl, you're the one girl for me, little girl. You're as sweet as can be, just a glance at you, meant love from the start. And oh, what a thrill came into my heart, little girl. With your cute little ways, I am yours for the rest of my days. And this great big world will be divine, little girl, when you're mine or mine. And I'm just bubbling over, my heart is thrilled with pride to think you're in my arms tonight. I'll be happy always with you right by my side. Each day a new dream of delight. Little girl, you're the one girl for me. Little girl, say you're as sweet as can be. Just a glance at you meant love from the start. And oh, what a thrill came into my heart, little girl. With your cute little ways, I am yours for the rest of my days. And this great big world will be divine, little girl, when you're mine or mine. Little girl, you're the one girl for me, little girl. You're as sweet as can be, just a glance at you, meant love from the start. I know what a thrill came into my heart, little girl, with your cute little wings, say I'm young for the rest of my days, and this great big world will be divine, little girl, when you're mine all With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.